Good morning, church. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad to gather together like this every week. This time now, we're going to have uh, what we call storytelling. It's our church's way of getting to know each other better. And today we have Susan Dupron, uh, who's going to share her story with us. Susan has been uh, one of these faithful soldiers in the church, and I'm so thankful for her. Susan, come on up and tell us a story. If I start to cry, will you all just say, breathe, and then maybe I'll <laughs> gain my composure. Over 20 years ago, my life was radically transformed when I gathered with some wonderful praying women and God worked a miracle in me. My hope is that by hearing my story, you too will be encouraged to find someone to pray with when the circumstances of your life cause you to realize that you need some serious help. Before I consented to tell a story today, I asked God to confirm that this was a good idea, and I received a scripture fragment that I believe was from the Spirit, which encouraged me to go ahead and speak. But when I looked up and read the entire verse, it made me smile. It contained much more encouragement than I had realized. Listen to 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. My prayer is that my story will do that verse justice. So on the screen should be the best recent picture of my family. It's taken about two years ago. <laughs> um, There's my husband, Rob, my daughter, Kate, and son, Will, and I'm Susan. I was raised in Wenatchee. I'm the fifth of seven kids of two loving parents. I had a happy childhood, but somehow I always craved more love and attention than I was getting, which I imagine is not an uncommon feeling in big families. Be that as it may, Satan used it to my detriment when I was about nine years old. Totally illiterate in any knowledge of sexual activity, but always anxious to please and be included, I fell prey to a teenager's inappropriate desires and unwittingly became one who could post under the hashtag MeToo banner. It's hard to believe in today's culture that a nine-year-old could be so sexually unaware, but I had no idea that anything was amiss until I was told not to tell my parents. The universal clue that a moral line has been crossed. Possibly because of my overwhelming desire to please, I didn't tell anyone what had happened. In fact, I kept it a secret until I was 22 years old. At that time, Rob and I had been dating for about three years, and through various circumstances and his trustworthiness, I finally developed the courage to tell him that I'd been sexually abused. The damage that is done to an abused child can be massive and lead to all sorts of emotional, mental, spiritual, and even physical issues. For me, the years of secrecy and unhealthy processing had left me awash in shame and guilt and pain. To cope, I had learned to compartmentalize and push down and ignore my emotions. I masked and compensated with a quick, sarcastic wit, a perfectionistic drive, and the need to control. Put all that in a human body and leave it to simmer for 13 years and you have a recipe for disaster. Rob sought out help for me and found a church in Bellevue that ministered to abused women. I learned that to graduate from the program, you had to forgive the person that molested you. 
So when I was able, I called the young man and told him I forgave him. And though I had accomplished the recommended goal, in truth, it really didn't seem to help much. Life went on. Rob and I got married. We had Kate, and Will was on the way. I guess on the outside, things looked pretty normal. But I was still full of pain, shame, fear, self-loathing, and a very deep level of sadness. The worst of all, though, was my anger, which could verge on full-blown rage and cause some serious damage. Right before Will was born, the leader of our childbirth refresher course commented that she was a survivor of sexual abuse. I have no idea how the other women, expectant mothers, processed this remark, but I believe the Holy Spirit used it in me to rekindle a desire for change. I clearly remember thinking, wow, she's a survivor. I feel like such a victim. Shortly after Will was born, we came back to this church, which Rob and I had attended back when we were in college, and it felt so comfortable and welcoming. I remarked that it felt like we were coming home. I became involved in Covenant Women, which was the church's women's group, so I got fed spiritually on Sundays at the service and on Thursdays with the women's group, and blessedly, on my own time, I turned to the scriptures for help. What I really wanted was to know God's specific will for my life, but try as I might to get it to happen, there were no burning bushes or thundering voices from heaven that told me what to do. Not completely discouraged, I figured that there were plenty of directives in the Bible that would clarify God's general will for my life, so I embarked on plan B, searching the scriptures for God's general will for me. Looking back, this is one of the great miracles of my life. How was it that I found so much joy and comfort in this searching, so much so that I hungered for more? Truth be told, it seems that God has often gone before me and delivered me, generally without me even being cognizant of the depth of my need. Anyway, praise God, the Holy Spirit moved and I clung to the promises I read and found hope. I heeded the advice of Jesus, Peter, Moses, and Isaiah and found direction. I let the faith and emotions poured out in the Psalms soak and soften my heart. I was strengthened by the truth, and the mess that I was started to move at a glacial pace towards wholeness. I'd also started to trust some of the prayerful, kind, and godly women involved in our Covenant Women gatherings. This trust was noteworthy because it provided the perfect atmosphere for me to unselfconsciously receive from God the healing I so desperately needed. The opportunity came at the church's women's retreat. In prayer prior to the retreat, I had clearly heard from God that I needed to name all the pain I was hiding. Looking inward was one of the hardest things I've ever done. All the years of fearful secrecy and suppressed and ignored emotions had created a terrifying barrier. Crossing it took all the courage I could muster. But at this point, I had enough knowledge of God that I could trust that there would be something good on the other side. Looking inward, it dawned on me that my coping mechanisms were actually sin, that I was keeping from God those things that needed to be brought into the light. I started to journal, and the result was my own personal psalm. I named my fears, I confessed my sin of being controlled by my fears, and of shutting people out of my life and hiding from God. I submitted to God's healing care. I met with the prayer ladies on Saturday evening of the retreat. 
I gave them brief details of the abuse I'd suffered, read the song I'd written, and we entered a time of prayer. They suggested that in my imagination, and if I felt able, that I picture my nine-year-old self on that fateful day. They reminded me that God is with us always, so they asked me if I could see Jesus in the room. Immediately, I saw a hand reaching toward me, and I grabbed it. And Jesus, all dressed as he's usually depicted in old-time Sunday school drawings with the white robe and sandals, took my hand strongly in his and gently led me to safety. We left the dark room, walked out of the house, and into a beautiful, sunshiny day. You're supposed to say breathe. <laughs> and Jesus picked me up and swung me around in a circle, just like dads often do with their kids. At this point, I sensed a sort of feeling of satisfaction from the prayer ladies, and shortly thereafter, our prayer time was done. Well, that was nice, I thought but it didn't really seem like anything remarkable. Within minutes, however, I noticed something exceedingly remarkable. It was the absence of voices. In my head, there was now quietness and peace. This was a case of not knowing that something exists until it's gone. I had not realized that there were incessant, shrill, nagging voices in my head that were constantly reminding me that I was not good enough. To have them gone was a kindness that shocked and overwhelmed me. Within hours, I realized that my debilitating sense of shame and the desire to live a life of secrecy had drastically diminished. Although the process had likely started years before, at that time, I felt like I had been miraculously and instantly changed. I remember thinking, wow, I thought it would be great to be a survivor, but God has made me a victor. I've continued to experience healing since that day. Where I once was on the self-loathing side of the spectrum, I can honestly say that now I'm much closer to believing what God says about you and me, that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's special possession. Thank you for listening to my story. And I didn't cry too much. <laughs> hmm. So this morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Ephesians. Feel free to follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading selected versions from the fourth chapter of Ephesians in the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, which, with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ 
until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, I need to breathe. Susan, thanks so much for sharing that story. That was a very powerful story. We are going to continue in our series today uh, in the book of Ephesians. A series called In Christ. And uh, the, today, the title of today's sermon is Requisite Unity. And it's, it's kind of related to the last one, which was Requisite Community from a few weeks ago. Uh, I want to jump right in, and I want to highlight uh, these verses for us. But verse 3 has this curious little phrase, be diligent to preserve the unity. And this jumped out at me because uh, I think about unity as a state of being. You know, it's just sort of what you are. And I didn't realize that you had to be diligent about it. It's not a passive state. But it's a kind of daily practice. It's a moment-by-moment practice that we're invited to partake in. And notice what it says about unity. Therefore, I, this is Apostle Paul talking, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, when I first hear the phrase, worthy of the calling, you know, sort of my uh, human, human side kicks in, my... Um, self-consciousness, my feeling like I have to uh, deserve what I've been given. And so I start thinking immediately about my personal, quote-unquote, holiness. Am I worthy? Have I not sinned? I came across this phrase uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I never heard this phrase before, but turns out it's a pretty common, uh, commonly used phrase. But it's, the phrase is moralistic Therapeutic deism. Moralistic, so you kind of understand what that means. Therapeutic, kind of self-helpish. Deism, a general belief in a God, that there is a higher being out there somewhere. And it may or may not be personal, but it's helpful to you, or at least it can be used that way. And it's really about you. It's you being a moral person. And of course, we're talking about relative moralism. Sort of like, yeah, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm generally a good person. You know, I haven't murdered anyone. I don't really cheat on my taxes. You know, I mean, I mean if they really came after me, maybe. But And then uh, therapeutic, sort of 
things are about you. You know, things are about you improving, you growing, your betterment as a person, right? And then you kind of believe in God. There is this, so moralistic, therapeutic deism, and that's what I think about, I guess, when I see this, uh, read it, this idea of being worthy of the calling. You know, it sounds lofty, and I have to do something about it, but that's not where Paul goes with it at all. I implore you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which you have been called. How? With all humility and gentleness. So the first thing isn't kind of a moralistic, therapeutic belief in God. It's not about personal holiness, but it's about actually the opposite, acknowledging you're not holy. It's about humility. With all humility and immediately it shifts from the self. So it's not about the self. It's about humility, which is really more of an emphasis and focus, seeing of others. It's putting others' needs before yours, right? Humility and gentleness, which isn't about yourself. Again, it's about other people. Patience, that's about other people. And the next phrase, I like this one, showing tolerance. I didn't know, you know, our culture values tolerance, and we sort of like, beat up on tolerance, but I didn't realize it was a biblical value. We're supposed to tolerate each other, right? That's again, but not about you. It's about the other person showing tolerance for, and here it is explicitly, one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this whole idea of being a Christian or follower of Christ, being a religious person, somebody who comes to church, it's not built around your personal holiness. The trait that Paul leads with when it comes to you being worthy of God's love is you being humble about yourself, focusing on the other person, and actually working hard to preserve that relationship. That's what Paul means by us being worthy. And this is really awesome for me. It's powerful because I don't tend to think about worthiness that way. You don't have to go and focus on yourself and be a better person. You know, I immediately think about uh, the Jewish leaders, you know, that Jesus was walking amongst. He would not tell them that holiness or worthiness was about private, personal holiness, status before God. So it's not, shouldn't be a surprise that Paul leans this way also. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders of Jesus' time, they really believe that worthiness before God was about their personal, private, moralistic, therapeutic deism. And Paul says, no, it's about love because it was always about love. What makes you worthy is not you. It's God's love towards you. It's God humbling himself to love you. And so the natural extension of that is not about your personal holiness, but it's about you humbling yourself and diligently loving others. Unity or oneness, as we understand it in the scriptures, is not primarily a state of being, but a practice, a way of lovingly, humbly, gently, with patience, with tolerance, loving one another. It's a way of interacting. It's a practice of interaction. Uh, two years ago or so, uh, maybe a year and a half, I read 
a, fan, a fantastic book on physics. It's the only one I've ever read. I think I've quoted him once before. Carlo Rovelli. He wrote this uh, popularized book called a Seven. Uh, it's called Seven Brief Lessons on physics. He's an Italian uh, theoretical physicist. And I really uh, don't know anything about physics or uh, physicists for that matter, but I really like him and his book because he's one of these guys who's not ever just talking about physics when he's talking about physics. He's always talking about life and the universe and how life works, and he's this sort of uh, integrating thinker. You know, so in the same breath, he talks about life and physics. I want to give you a couple of quotes that all describe this one belief that comes through in a lot of his writings uh, that all reality, he basically says, on a physical level, him for him, physical meaning physics level, is interactions. He says nothing is actually a thing until it begins interacting with another thing that's not really a thing. Right? So a couple of quotes to illustrate this. Quantum mechanics and experiments with particles have taught us that the world is a continuous, restless swarm of things, a continuous coming to light and disappearance of ephemeral entities, a set of vibrations. And then he goes on to explain the reason reality itself in quantum mechanics, really it's just vibrations, is because whatever you think is a thing, like it exists, it actually doesn't exist until it interacts with something else and then it vibrates. And then it becomes a thing. And then when, when the vibration is gone, it's not a thing anymore. It doesn't really even exist. I can't get my mind wrapped around that, but I kind of get it because I know I'm not a thing until I start interacting with other things. Like we are a thing, but you are not a thing, and I am not a thing. Like if I is, exist in a forest and nobody's there to hear me or see me or relate to me, do I exist? Like in your mind, I wouldn't exist if I was in the forest and you didn't know I existed until you interact with me and then you go, oh, Peter is a thing. It exists. I don't know you're a thing until I interact with you. And then I go, oh, you're a thing too. But only because we've interacted. And that's what Orvelli is saying. It's so mind-blowing and helpful for me. Another quote. In quantum mechanics, no object has a definite position. Yeah. Nothing actually is anywhere. There's no reference point except when colliding headlong with something else. And then you go, oh, there it is. Now it's gone. Okay, one more. Okay, two more. All things are continuing. I love this stuff. Can you tell? <laughs> All things are continually interacting with each other, and in doing so, each bears the traces of that with which it has interacted. And in this sense... All things continuously exchange information about each other. So not only do we start existing when we interact with each other, not only do we exist in, in space when we begin to interact with each other, we begin to take on traits of the other thing that also doesn't exist until we interact, and then we exchange pieces of ourselves. Once again... Last quote, 
And this summarizes it all. The world seems to be less about objects than about interactive relationships. So all of existence, reality itself, things themselves on a quantum mechanical level only exist as interactions. Now, why is this powerful? Why is this to the point? Because this is what Paul is saying. Really, we, at our shining best, are a we. We exist created by God, hardwired by God, purposed by God to be interactive, to be a body, to be one, to be united. This is the fundamental law of human existence. You can skirt around this. You can choose to defy this as much as you can defy gravity or any other laws of physics. You are a thing made significant and worthy by your interactions with each other. You walk in a manner worthy by showing humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, and love towards one another, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Wow. For me, that is incredible. I feel so much less pressure to have to be this person. I truly am nothing without you. And you are truly nothing without me. We have all reason to be humble and to fight the good fight of preserving our ability to continue to interact. Because within the sanctity, the sacredness of those interactions, we exist at our best. So powerful for me. But uh, the rest of the sermon really is about asking this question. How are we to be diligent in preserving this unity? How do we stay a we? What does that healthy picture, that divine intent look like? So we have three things. Um, The three things are uh, current, culture, and connected. Okay, we'll go through these things. Okay, Uh, verse 7 and then 11 to 13 Uh, Let me read it for us again. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of of Christ. Simple truth I want to bring out of here. We don't have to go through all the things it has to teach us, but one thing I want you to notice is that every single person is a recipient of God's grace. This word here is the word charismata. That's the Greek word. Charis means grace. Mata means give. So it's grace gifts that God has given to us. Everything we have, we have because we have received it. Remember, we're an empty vessel. And so God has poured into us gifts. And these gifts express themselves in life in different ways, different situations, call call forth from us different gifts, different resources that we have. 
So a simple way to say this is this. Life is a potluck. You got to bring something. You can't bring nothing. So in order, the first way to be diligent, to stay united, to stay interactive with each other, is for us to understand that we have something to bring and we are asked to bring it. Can you imagine if you and one other family, like it's just going to be two of you, decided to have a potluck and then you show up with nothing? What would you feel? What would they feel? What would happen? What's the first words that have to come out of your mouth if it's a potluck and it's just you and one other person and you don't bring anything? gets really awkward really fast. Okay, now what if there's three families coming together and you all decided that it would be a potluck? You would still feel kind of funny if you didn't bring something, right? Something would be missing. At what number do you get to not have to bring something? When the church says we're going to have a potluck lunch after service, everybody brings something. You could probably not bring something. We'll be okay. But are you okay? You know. And so if you know you didn't bring something, it's not going to really work that well for you. Your joy in that meal will be multiplied if you brought something and you're invested and you're sneaking peeks at the thing you brought to see how well it's selling. You know, you're invested in the dinner because you contributed. You experience that evening so differently if you've invested right? <clears throat> I uh, had this job of uh, passing out bulletins. Uh, and I've never had that job in my life, to be honest with you. And Elise had asked me to pass out bulletins. And oh my goodness, I've never cared about bulletins more in my life than when it was my job to pass out bulletins. <laughs> it's a good Friday service that we had before Easter. And Elise was preaching and she wanted to give me a job. And I ran around making sure everybody had bulletins. And then we ran out of bulletins because more people came than we thought, and I was mortified. I've never been mortified about bulletins before, but I cared so much about bulletins. And afterwards, guess what feedback I made sure it was just on the table, it's on the agenda, super urgent. We can't run out of bulletins, guys. Maybe we should double print next time. We got... We got I mean, I've never had any comments about bulletins ever. But suddenly I cared because I brought something. It was a thing I cared about. I was connected and interactive and invested in a whole different way. And so the first way we stay diligent in preserving the unity, the bond that we have as a people, is to always bring something because you're called to bring something and not nothing. Life is a potluck. Second thing is culture. We are called to create a culture. Verse 15, 16, 25, and 26. Let me read it for us. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. 
Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So this idea of building up the body, because we are meant to fit together. We're not just an, as uh, Tim Keller, I just heard him say this week, we're not an aggregation. We are a congregation. We're not just a bag of marbles, right? We're meant to be working together. We're more like gears inside a watch. And we're meant to work together. And the question is, well, how do we do that? How do we get started? And the answer is found in the first verse, 15, but speaking the truth in love. Now, you can highlight this verse, this phrase, truth in love, and take that all the way home till you die. This is a powerful little phrase. And the rest of the verses, it sort of just uh, unpacks what Paul means by truth in love. Truth in love in practice means that we are to speak the truth, but not just the truth, but in love. We're not just to be loving to each other, but we're supposed to be truthful in our loving. Truth in love. It means that you are called somehow to find a way not just to love each other in the body, but to put truth into your love. You are called not just to speak the truth, but to do it in love. These two things have to always stay together. That's the key. Together, it's a key that can unlock. By itself, either one by itself cannot unlock the door to being a body together. I have found that in my marriage, if I decide I'm going to be just truthful, now you already get this. I can see the smiles on your faces. If I'm just truthful, it doesn't go as well. And if I'm just loving, eventually I throw up the truth. You know, it finds a way to just come on the scene. I know it's vivid, but that's how unappealing it is when somebody is either just loving or just truthful. It doesn't do the whole job. And here's the thing that I've learned over these years, especially in the context of my marriage, that if I am being just truthful, then I actually am not being truthful at all because the whole truth is always loving. If you tell the whole truth, it always includes your participation in whatever truth you're speaking. And if you are a participant in that story somehow, you've contributed to that equation. You are a factor, not a non-factor. And you are imperfect. And so whatever truth you're speaking, if it's the whole truth, it's always, at minimum, a two-way street. It's usually more even systemic than that. So the whole truth actually turns out to be very perspectival and gentle because it has perspective, it's patient, and it's able to see all the ways that this thing has gone wrong. And you're able to shed light on something, the whole thing, and you see there were forces beyond your control. There was a history to this. You see the weaknesses and the fears that are coming into the play, in, in, into the space here that you're trying to create. 
And so when you shed all the light that you need to shed on something that's truth, you find that it's actually quite loving. It's compassionate. It's empathetic. So it's not, hey, the truth is you did wrong. That's maybe true, partially. But the whole truth is, hey, you did do something wrong, but a lot of it was in reaction to that other thing that I didn't do or did. And what your mama did and what your dad didn't do and what happened in school and what's going to happen tomorrow and what's going on right now. And you start talking about everything that really came to bear on what went wrong. You realize, oh, man, we're sort of all in this together, really, aren't we? I'm a part of the equation. So the whole truth tends to be loving. And if you're going to be loving, you know, uh, when I was thinking about this, I thought about my uh, mentor, Grammy Gwen in Vermont. And uh, she's a safe person to me, and I've poured my heart out to her many times. And here's the thing about, and I'm going to uh, generalize this. I'm going to say I have seen this much more in older people than in younger people. But older people, in my uh, own estimation, have seen so much of life. They understand. They're sort of like patience and tolerance. These things are sort of built into who they are now. You know, that's part of the glory of getting older. You know, and if you're older and you're not that, you know, maybe you're going to live longer because you need to get there. It's really the, the crown of getting older is this, the character. It's about the wisdom and the love that's sort of uh, knitted into, you know, the fabric of who you are. And think about my Grammy Gwen. And I remember the years, younger years, when I would just be just at my wit's end about how fallible and blameworthy Susie was in our marriage. You know, I just would, oh, Gwen, you don't understand. She just, and I just, just, just partial truth, right? It's my side of the story. And she would lovingly look at me, just only love coming through. And she would say, oh, Peter, that must feel awful. But in her eyes, I can see that there was a greater truth. There's like another flip side to this story. I mean, she loves Susie too. She sees the whole thing, not just my thing, right? And so in her eyes, when she's saying, oh, Peter, I love you so much, I can also see she's saying, I can't wait till you grow up. I'm never going to abandon you because I really want to see how this story ends. For my own sanity's sake, I need to stay on this ride with you, don't I? And I can see that. I can see the tolerance and the perspective in her eyes that there is a truth even when she's what I think is just being loving, just being kind and taking my side. In her eyes, she sees the whole thing. And I imagine Jesus was like that, you know. And I'm so glad to have had Gwen as a, a real-life human example of it. But Jesus, like when he's confronted with so-called sinners, like, you know, uh, Another great uh, Carlo Rovelli quote I read in his book uh, that I reread again this week was he's talking about sort of the necessity of having to always be a learner if we're going to, you know, prog progress as a humanity, as a species. And he says, uh, so, you know, the smartest people, he says, always know they don't know anything because they know enough to know there's way too much to know. And in comparison, they know nothing. And so he has this one brilliant quote. He says, therefore... Genius hesitates. So if you're a genius, you know, you know you still don't know everything, so you kind of hesitate. When somebody says something, you kind of pause, and you go, huh, I wonder if, and you start, 
getting into your learner's brain, right? So I love that about really actually smart people. They're not like, oh, I know everything. Shut up. Let me do all the talking. They just hesitate. There's a teachability and a humility about them. And that's really what love, truth and love is like. It's willing to hesitate. It's willing to hold you and pause and not have to get at you all the time. And that's what Jesus did, you know, when they brought this woman supposedly caught in adultery and they said, you're a rabbi, you're a moralistic person. You know, what should we do? The scriptures say we're supposed to stone her. They picked up stones. And what does Jesus do? Truth and love, right, moment. He kneels down and he hesitates because he's a genius. He hesitates and he starts writing on the ground. He pauses. He he's not quick to speak. Somebody blurts out, what should we do? What must I do? And instead of having an answer, he hesitates. And he asks a question. This is all truth in love. Your ability to hold truth, not lose your sense of self. You know, you love somebody. You could love them with your eyes and then speak the truth. Or you could love them with your mouth, but speak the truth with your eyes. There's ways to do this. And as we get older, we grow in the wisdom of how to be both truth and love. And then at our final, you know, our final form, when we finally arrived on the other side of heaven, it will be we are truth in love. We're now practicing truth and love. And the end product is creating a culture, normalizing for us as a church how to speak the truth and love to one another. Okay. Uh, next, last, is this idea of being connected. And this will also be our conclusion. Verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The first thing I want to point out here is that verse 31 Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. These things are natural and normal. These are, if we're honest, what you and I are. Now, verse 32 is supernatural. Verse 31 is natural. Verse 32 is supernatural. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving, each other. How? How can we do this? Because our natural state is to be bitter and wrathful and angry and clamorous and slanderful and filled with malice. The alternative of being kind and tenderhearted and forgiving, that comes from above. That comes from without. And that is from God. It's a completely foreign, alien thing that breaks into who we are and leads us that way. It's just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So in and only in the example of Jesus do we see really how to preserve the unity of the bond of peace here. Uh, there's this thing that I learned last year that I love that I think about all the time. It's called supernormal super stimuli. You know what that is? That's when like... Um, uh, Mom's, a mom bird is drawn to her egg to sit on it because it's got this nice blue color, right? That's normal. 
That's a normal stimuli. A, a bird has the instinct to sit on its own eggs, right? A super normal stimuli, I learned, is when you make a fake egg and then you paint it an extra bright blue. And then the mom who has these instincts are so drawn to that fake egg that she'll sit on that fake egg to the neglect of her own actual real eggs. And she can't help it. It's irresistible to her because her own egg is less blue and the fake egg is super blue. And so that's a super normal stimuli. Same thing with like our phones. You know why people get addicted to their phones? Because it's super normal. There are things built into that device that tap into your normal reflexes. And we're so super drawn to this thing, we become addicted. Same thing with, let's say, sugar. Same thing with advertisement. Same thing with physical beauty. These things are not normal, but it becomes super to us. And then we can't help but be drawn to it. That's kind of what Paul is saying here. You know, the natural, normal thing is not attractive at all. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Nobody's signing up for these things. It's not like they want to go out and spend money on these things. What people, what human beings are really meant for, the instinct we have, the thing that's irresistible to us, because that's what we're wired for, is the being kind to one another. It's the tenderhearted, forgiving each other, because that comes from a supernatural God, that act of Christ dying for us to preserve our relationship. That's supernatural. And we are so drawn to that. That's a light that we can't turn away from. We move towards that kind of light. And so Paul says, finally, to preserve the unity, to be a body, to be what God intended us to be, do this supernatural thing that you can only do in Christ. We can Stay connected to each other if we practice the supernatural act of forgiving each other. The supernatural act of being kind to one another. Of being tender-hearted towards one another. Because naturally what you and I are going to do, if you just let your own nature run its course, is when somebody wrongs you, you're going to break the relationship in some way. You're going to withdraw emotionally. You're going to withdraw in frequency of contact. Or you're going to just withdraw from them permanently altogether. You're going to erase them from your phone, defriend them on Facebook or Instagram. They're gone. Try to erase them. And that's natural. That's our natural self-preserving reaction to pain and hurt and broken trust. The supernatural thing, though, is to stay with the friend to forgive, to be kind. I want to read you three verses, and then we will close. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13 to 14 says this. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. 
Galatians 3, 26 to 28. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there any male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we confess this morning that it really is the cry of our hearts to not have falling outs with each other, to not feel separated from each other. You, we really were created to be a body, united together, functioning together. And God, we thank you that there's instruction on how to do that. God, I pray that we would be able to speak the truth in love to one another. I pray we would not be a passive-aggressive group here where we are sort of nice and... Um, it's not about niceness. It really is about truth in love. Help us to do that with courage and in, with supernatural power because, Christ, you have done this by dying for us on the cross. You didn't break the relationship. You didn't give up on us. But you did all that you can, even at the cost of your life, to preserve the unity. And thank you that we have that model and power accessible to us. We lift our church up to you in Jesus' name, amen.